Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. It's Friday at 12.20. That means live from the WYSO studios. It's time for the film guys and me, Nikki Dakota. It's Filmically Perfect. quest to search out and bring to you the best movies ever made. It's what we call filmically perfect and we're uh, just uh, very glad to welcome Jay Todd Anderson. Jay Todd, good uh, day to you and also George Willem and welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. We are here to celebrate on this day a film that uh, really set a standard that is still being paid homage to, that is still uh, an icon all these many years later. Uh, gentlemen, it's a double indemnity. Uh, tell us first how long ago this movie was made. Well, first we have to address our rules, you know, because we play by rules. Oh, that's right. This is a perfect movie, folks, and we deem it perfect because... First, uh, it creates the world that it exists in. Yes. Yes, and double indemnity wholly sustains that world for the whole movie. And regardless of the changes in society, of which there have been many, uh, it retains its meaning and its entertainment value. Hence, it is a perfect movie. We call it filmically perfect, and this movie, it was it 1944, am I right? That is during the war. This is a movie made during World War II. When, when there was a sort of a dark mood over the country, if you will. Well, things changed for the United States because all of a sudden they were able to see what, what really goes on. You know, before World War II, they didn't have a lot of uh, uh, ways of seeing what goes on in, in warfare and, and in other countries that they were blowing up at the time. It was all pictures. But they were able to see newsreel footages, and all of a sudden a, a very, very distinct tone came over the United States uh, as far as making movies and other forms of art Uh, and this is and am i right in thinking that it really established the genre of film noir which means black film black film and and why exactly i mean black now is that literally because there's so much darkness on the screen that's definitely part of it i think it's also because the stories fairly disparaging um the stories are dark the characters are dark and there's absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel it just there's no happy ending there's no good resolution to it, as there had been before in films dealing with crimes where, you know, the bad guy was organized crime or yeah. some definite villain. These became the ordinary everyday people who were trying to get ahead, but for whatever reason just kept digging themselves into a grave. So dark in just about every way, a film noir. Do you know who coined that, coined that phrase, by the way? No, I do not. Philip Noir? Philip <laughs> <laughs> Maybe our CD of the month, Jim Noir, yeah. <laughs> noir, well, French for the word, it means literally black, right? Not, yeah, not dark, but black. It's not too much, uh, you know, you're not going to see this kind of movie being made at MGM at the time, which, you know, everybody had dimples in their cheeks over there, but you got you got this, uh, some really astounding actors in this movie, and you got Fred McMurray, who became sitcom dad, yeah. and... Uh, and he was son of Flubber. He was Professor Flubber. Uh, and here he is with the five o'clock shadow <laughs> saying words like, kiss me, baby, shut up and kiss me. Um, you're rotten. Yeah, but you're more rottener and things like that. This is Fred McMurray. And then you got 
Barbara Stanwyck, you know. Uh, she's wearing a really wonderfully awful wig, yeah. you know, yeah. which makes her look really tacky. So this was a, truly a real a sort of stretch of what they had been, the characters they had become known to play. Uh, George, could you give us a little, yeah, a little it, plot synopsis here? Uh, yeah, sure. Basically, the story uh, is told in flashback by this insurance salesman, Walter Neff, who comes back to the office one night and starts dictating this story to his best friend and co-worker Barton Keyes about a certain uh, insurance policy that he'd sold to the, this family, the, D- the Dietrichsons. And um, it flashes back to show how he just happened to stop by their house one day to do a renewal on their auto policies, saw Mrs. Dietrichson, and just yeah. went head over heels for her. Over her ankle bracelet. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> and, um, and basically, through their continued involvement with each other which which becomes quite hot for 1944 terms Ooh. and um they they decide to to give her husband this accident policy double with a double indemnity. indemnity clause which means under certain situations they'll get twice as much money as they would normally and they plot to kill him and make it look like he fell off a train at 15 miles an hour yes <laughs> so Good. it kind of seems like it's going to work but then of course as with film noir everything begins to come apart and unravel and in the end, the two—it's a march lovers, to the gallows, man. Yeah, the two step lovers end up end up facing off with each other. Yeah, um, and they find out that our lovable Fred McMurray character is being played by this tart, this blonde. So she's going to take the money and run. Oh, right. yeah, she's—he's—he's he's like her fourth culprit, her third culprit. You know, he's—he's he's just another brick on the pile, man. He's just getting played. So just dark, cold. Oh, hearted, it's dark and cold, but hard, it's wonderful, hard. folks. You can go out and buy it at any store they right now because it's been re-released. It, yeah. Some of the most beautiful black and white photography you're ever going to see ever. By the way, it, it's film noir doesn't apply to color film, does it? I mean, you don't have. Are there film noir films that are in color? There have been some people who have tried, um, but usually it's just in homage to these films. Which yes. The man who wasn't there on a color negative, but you saw it in black and white, of course. Is that right? Yes. Well, there's something about black and white that just has... To, I mean, I even, I even prefer black and white photos. There's something about it that's just these uh, right. tones Well, they can gray. craft a tone a little bit better with... Because uh, you have to work a little harder to get where you're going to go with black and white, you know? So this cold, cold story was actually originally written, I think, in 34 by James M. Kane, a journalist who um, had written, a, I think, maybe just a novel before and then came up with this it story. Actually, it started out as a, as a serial for a magazine, and he couldn't sell it. He was really despondent. Nobody wanted it. They thought it was disgusting. He put it aside. He said, well, I'll never, I'll never put this story between hardcovers as long as I live. And then, like, two months later, his agent sold it. And it became an enormous hit and was actually put out in print and reprinted at least three or four times during his life. And then they, they started working on a script. It took them from 38 to 44 to get a script that could be accepted by the... Um, by the, the Hayes uh, the Hayes, the the Hayes, Hayes code. code. Yeah, which would not allow suicide because that just doesn't work on movie screens. But you could kill anybody Isn't you want funny? with guns. There was a know. code in that said, among other things, and I have never read these codes, but I learned from watching this movie that uh, that you cannot end a movie with suicide. What's right. up with that? Can you believe that there was a time? And so it was difficult for them to take this story and make it into something that was not just uh, uh, you know, a story that was acceptable by the Hayes Code, but also a fantastically good story indeed so it was a real effort well one of the and and i love some of the ways billy wilder works around the code to get little things in the movie um one and i just noticed at this time uh there is a scene where walter and phyllis craft their plan and he has come she has come to his apartment 
and they talk about it for a bit and then there's a dissolve or a fade or something when they come back she's working on her makeup and he's like ha- having a cigarette and it's, 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 like, it's quite obvious yeah it's quite here. obvious something has happened but after she leaves he's walking out to the kitchen he looks down on the floor and the carpet there's like a throw rug that's all folded up and he kicks it flat so giving the inference that they something did it on the, floor. on the floor <laughs> This is the way they got around these things. That's great. Yeah. That is so great. So no problem with the code, and they still, no. if someone was sharp, they would have picked up exactly what indeed did happen. Yep. On now, the you know, there's there's one aspect of this movie um, that the reason why it's in our perfect films category is that not too many people have written about. But you'll notice in this movie, this is Hollywood in 1944, and things look pretty good out there. They're not suffering. And the house is one of these ultra-modern houses, and they have two cars. Ooh. And they've got all the conveniences that anybody could ever possibly want back then. But that's not enough. Their maximized comfort has been established, and now they don't know what to do. And even the child, who looks like she's about 22, you know, she's hot, of course, (laughs) because Frank McMurray goes out and he dates her, too, through this movie. Even she cat. doesn't know what to do because she, you know, she had, needs direction. But here's these bored adults. They're in their mid-30s, and they've already done everything. So now they're hunting for a little bit more excitement in life. So convenience calls. Ooh, it's a siren. And everybody's, this is what we're moving toward, you know. And this is what is our God nowadays is convenience. But right. they truly follow convenience because they need excitement. They need action. And they're not convinced their comfort has been maximized. So they need murder. You know, and this is this is something that they're getting involved in because they are bored. He's an insurance salesman. <laughs> he is bored in this movie. And then, yeah, he's. A, think about that. How many movies get made Man. about insurance? You know, <laughs> that's what's really cool about this picture. They're talking about an insurance policy. You know, which is great filmmaking. You know, so. The, the siren of convenience is telling these people what to do and how to do it. And that's that's very interesting because this is one of the very first movies that deals with prosperity in an odd way. Yeah. That it's just not good enough. You know, we need more. We need more. And we don't need money. We need excitement. <laughs> they use money as the auspices. Don't you think, George? Yeah. This is uh, Billy Wilder's second film. Am I right in thinking that? It was early, early on in Billy Wilder's career. I don't know exactly his second film. Yeah. It's probably one of his early, uh, definite early American films. Because, of course, he'd come over here from from uh, escaping, basically, from Germany and Austria. And as George points out, it's from... Yeah, it's, it's an, a, a European's view of America. Which and is Americans. always the best view, you know. Um, which, you know, they, they see things about us that we do not see. I'm always amazed to see films by European directors about Americans and how insightful they can often be on little things that we just, you know, we live with them, so we don't notice them. Mm-hmm. And Sergio Leone, the guy that did all the spaghetti westerns, the Italian guy, he said that once Americans stop behaving like Americans, we have to take America away from them. <laughs> That's what he said. So this, it's, the observations always by foreigners are much more interesting than than our own people talking about ourselves. For instance, everybody in Los Angeles likes to think they're from Ohio and they make movies about people in Ohio. And never get them right. Never get them right. (laughs) Never, ever, ever. It's always in Columbus, Ohio. This takes place in Steubenville, Ohio. (laughs) So Billy Wilder coming from a a definitely different perspective and also taking on a... uh, In fact, everybody kind of took a chance on this movie. Uh, Edward G. Robinson plays the boss. Gives it a performance of his lifetime in this thing, man. Right, and who didn't really want it at first because he wasn't going to be the star and he'd always was so used to being the star but got to thinking about it and realizing you know he was getting up there and 
and gee, maybe it would be a good idea. He's 51 at the time. And plus he recognized the the quality of this tale, the the sheer solid Which is amazing because so many people didn't. I mean, George Raft was originally going to be in this film, and he didn't want it. In fact, George Raft seemed to make a career of turning down great roles that went to other people, like yeah, Humphrey Bogart. Nobody can remember what movies it is, but they can remember that he turned down all these movies. How'd you like to have, well, have that? Well, I remember that he, he dances he dances with Jerry Lewis in The Ladies' Man, but that's about all I can remember. <laughs> Way to go. Yeah, that's right. He, that's and, right. And, color, yeah. and Wilder normally worked Wilder normally worked with an, a, a screenwriter named Charles Brackett, but Brackett found this story so distasteful, he didn't want to work on it. So he went with uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, the author of many great um, film noir and big, yeah. big, uh, big sleep. Um, excuse me, big sleep. <laughs> and big sleep. Um, and and he is probably one of the probably the person responsible for some of the really wonderful dialogue in this film. And we have a little a little fragment of that that some we some of the captured. coolest dialogue ever written for movies coming up. Smith, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around eight thirty? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. 8.30 tomorrow evening, ma'am. That's what I suggested. Would you be here, too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. <laughs> hey, man, that's, that's some cool dialogue. <laughs> I wonder if uh, you know what I mean or what. It's just almost like the... Is that, uh, that hard-boiled or what? <laughs> amazing. Plus, by the way, we noticed that that whole, that tears it, that, that was also it. used in The, uh, the, the Searcher. That tears it. Must have yes, been we try to keep connections to all of our little shows here. <laughs> yeah, We're doing filmically perfect reviewing the movie Double Indemnity, which, by the way, has just been uh, reissued in a very nice package here and uh, really just... Uh, set a whole new trend in Hollywood uh, and, and certainly a style that's still being paid homage to uh, to this day, film noir. Uh, oh, and, and what's really interesting about the new um, the new DVD release, this was very nice of, of Universal to do this, the uh, DVD comes with a coaster that uh, <laughs> if, you, if you don't want to use it to put a drink on, you can turn it over on the back and it's got the 1973 remake of Double Indemnity. Yeah. Uh, that you can watch. <laughs> Definitely a coaster. Okay, you totally had me. I'm like, yeah. mine didn't have a coaster. Nikki was gone for that. You get a free coaster? The, 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 oh. the coaster The coaster says disc number It's giveaway two. day. Why so, man? So who was in the, the awful? Uh, the, the awful remake has Richard Crenna and Samantha Egger. Good actors, you know. Uh, yeah, from I mean, it's all good people. From 73. Uh, it, the screenplay was based on this one. It was written by Stephen Bochco and... And directed by Jack Smite, and they're all really good people. I, just, I tried to watch it, and it has the exact same opening dialogue, but it just doesn't work. It sounds dumb, and I think it's because of the the era that the story was written in is the only time it's going to work. You know, I have often wondered why would you even try to remake something that is so good? Is, it a, is it a vanity ching, thing? Ching. It's yeah. money, money. They got the, the property, man. I have great respect for Steve Martin. Great respect for him. And that was just stupid to remake <laughs> the Pink Panther. What was he thinking? Well, the, the remakes that are really good are the ones that have remade movies that are no good at all. You know. Like. <laughs> 
Yeah, like what was it? Uh, what was the Bogart the... movie that uh, Maltese Falcon had been made several times, and then they remade it with Bogart. So the other two, you don't. You'll, once in a while, you'll see them on Turner Classic Movies. Yeah, but yeah. The remake was better than the original right. picture. Occasionally so that, that happens. Case, you, know, you just you don't remember it, but... the original picture. That's right. why. Right. You because know. they're forgettable. The yeah. only reason I can think why why Universal would have done a remake is because they didn't make the movie originally. Originally, it was made by Paramount, oh. and they they bought that. I mean, they bought Paramount's library from them, uh, and that was one of the properties. And they said, "Oh, let's do this." So it really you know? is cha-ching. It really does. Come oh, out. it's always yeah. about money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's about always arts. about money. If it's Hollywood, it's about money. You know, there's there's nothing. You know, art is a guy with no arms and legs and hangs on a wall in Hollywood. You know. <laughs> Oh, it's about money. Are your you feet know? hot? Because you're probably going to burn in hell for that one. You know. <laughs> That's the Hollywood thing, you know. <laughs> We're talking uh, to J. Todd Anderson and George Willeman. It's something we call Filmically Perfect that we do on a Friday, and we're uh, looking at the movie Double Indemnity. It's... Um, it's uh, well-written, well-acted, and um, let's uh, talk about that it creates the world, certainly. It sustains that oh, world sustained. and truly does still hold up, yay, these, what is it, 60 years, 60 years ago, and still has meaning and, uh, and value. So it, fulfilling all three of our rules, uh, one of the better movies ever made. I uh, guarantee you, uh, you'll at least enjoy watching it. You, know? you might feel guilty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Filmically perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Uh, this is uh, the soundtrack in the back. Are you? Uh, is this? Did this guy go on to do great things? Or? Uh... Oh yeah, uh, Miklos Rosa um, did many um, more uh, film noir soundtracks. He also uh, in her and huh. time after time and goes on and on and on. And he also did. Uh, the score, one of his last ones was for Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Oh, how funny, Steve speaking Martin, of Steve yes, Martin. Uh, which also utilizes footage from yeah. uh, this <gasps> movie. Wow. Where that's Steve, Martin, cool has movie. A, Steve yeah. Martin has a love scene with Fred McMurray that's fairly disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they, it's, it's more than just the rolled up carpet. Maybe it's like <laughs> <laughs> J. Todd Anderson, George Willeman, thank you so much for coming by. And uh, do, you know, do we know next week's? What do we got? Uh, I don't know. You know what we could do? We could do so much stuff. We could do, uh, I would like to talk about the origin of some of these terms. We could just like have a little little education session next time around or whatever you please, but I, sure. I can guarantee you it's going to be good. Yeah, that sounds interesting. We can do a yeah. technical, a technical, technical day. question and yeah. answers. Maybe we can even take a, a call or two. It's uh, filmically perfect and it's every Friday. And thank you for listening. It's uh, Jayton Anderson. Thank you. Thank you very much. George Willeman. Thank you. We'll see you later. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.